Built Unstoppable is a weekly podcast that features a new guest each week who shares their experiences, learnings, and helpful tips for achieving your greatest potential. Welcome to episode number four of the Built Unstoppable podcast. I'm your host, Justin Levy, and today I'm joined by Jackie Summers. Jackie's an author, public speaker, the creator of Sorel Liquor, and was the bl- first black person in America to have a license to make liquor. Thanks for joining the podcast today, Jackie. Justin, it's always a pleasure. How have you been? I've been good. You know, uh, can't complain. You, with being home, stuck at home, it's given me an opportunity to start building out my own kind of gym in my garage and, Excellent. Uh, you know, do some fun stuff like that. So let's kick it off with something that is probably on everyone's mind. What does it take to obtain a liquor license and then even further to go to launch a liquor brand? Um. Uh- Ideally, to launch to launch a liquor brand or to acquire a liquor license, you need to have a million dollars and be part of a liquor family. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't have that kind of money and if you don't have that kind of access, for the most part, you are shit out of luck. Uh, but if you don't have those things, what I recommend, uh, the thing that worked for me, is a combination of unrelenting stubbornness and not having the ability to know what you can't do. I don't know what I can't do. So I just do things. I don't get that they're impossible. Because if you don't have a million bucks and if you don't don't come from a liquor family, launching a liquor brand is close <laughs> to impossible. Well, you proved all that wrong for sure. Uh, sort of. When I got my liquor license in 2012, I was the only black guy in America with a license to make liquor. Now I think there are five of us. Uh, But what you find out in retrospect is that these barriers are not uh, accidental. They are deliberate. The story I like to tell at this point is the first person of color, the first black person in this country, in America, to get a license to practice law was 1896. He passed the bar. And the response of the academic community was to move the goalposts. They said, now before you can apply to take the bar, you have to have a BA. so the people who could afford to get a bachelor's degree, handful of them, got their degrees and applied for, applied for the bar. And when they saw that happen, they changed the rules again. They said, now if, before you can take the bar, you have to have a bachelor's degree and a four-year law degree. And if you couldn't afford six years of school, being a lawyer was something that was out of access for you. It was just beyond your reach. It's not dissimilar with liquor. With liquor, you can trace pretty much all of the existing laws back to right the prohibition when they repealed the Volstead Act. The people who made a lot of money uh, running uh, alcohol illegally paid politicians to rewrite the laws to make access pretty much uh, impossible. Yeah. So if you, if you want to 
again, and this is speaking specific, specifically for liquor. I'm not sure if it's the same for wine or for beer. But if you want to have a license to make liquor, it's a 10-year background check on everywhere you've lived, everywhere you've worked, every dime you've made, federal, city, and state. Uh, it's a criminal background check. If there's anything on your record, it's an automatic disqualification. They want you to hold a lease on your physical space, which will be empty and unoccupied and only costing you money for the duration of the process, which can take up to two years. They want you to list the serial numbers of your equipment. Wow. When you're on your application. So they want you to buy a few hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment before you get started. Wow. So it's designed to prohibit entry to market. So again, if you if you have a million bucks, or if you come from a liquor family, you're good to go. If you don't, it's going to be challenging. Wow, that's incredible. And I didn't know about that. But, you know, what you were talking about, the first, uh, you know, person to ever uh, earn their law degree, it's what we've seen with a lot of things, right? The moving gold post. So it's, okay, you, yep. you need to do this. Well, someone does that, you know, whether they're of color or, or of poverty, you know, they, and then all of a sudden it's like, ooh someone accomplished that they weren't supposed to. So now we got to move that a right. little further. Uh, they weren't supposed to right. accomplish that. We'll move that a little further for everyone else. Uh, so unfortunately it's something we continue to see these days. Now what's the idea behind the name of the brand uh, Sorel? So, there's a beverage called sorrel that's been in the Caribbean for about four centuries. Uh, it first started to be made in the 16th century when they began to import hibiscus flowers from West Africa into the Caribbean as part of the spice trade. And they would make a tea from uh, the flowers. It's incredibly healthy for you. It's uh, full of vitamin C. It's got antioxidants, antimicrobials. It's just really good. Part of what they would do to preserve the tea, British naval officers all had a stipend of rum as part of the salary. So they'd put some rum in the tea, and that would make it last a little bit longer. And this got to be a beverage that was mixed with other spices, depending on where you fell in the Caribbean. If you were in Jamaica, for example, you probably got it with ginger and cardamom and allspice. If you were deeper in the spice route, you probably got cinnamon and nutmeg. Uh, like all Caribbean families, I had a version that I was doing in my kitchen that I thought was pretty good. Uh, but I couldn't call mine sorrel because I have a speech impediment and I have great difficulty pronouncing R's and L's. So for me, trying to say sorrel is like trying to say rural or terrar. It's an awful word. However, I had had eight years of enunciation classes in public school. Other kids got to go play after school. I saw a speech pathologist. And here's one of the things that I learned. Words that end in a down sound are sad. <laughs> Sorrow is a sad word. Sorrel is happy. And I can pronounce it. So my brand, which is based on Sorrel, is called Sorrel. So I don't sound like a dumbass every time <laughs> I say the name. That's so two things to that. One, I travel to the Caribbean often with my family. I've been to 
I don't know, five to seven islands now over the years, if not more. And I always seek out uh, hot sauce that's particular to that area, right? Particular to that island because kind of to what you were saying, everyone has a different hot sauce, not only to the island, but to different people that are making it at home. I remember when we were in either St. Martin or Aruba, or it might've been both, like we, we pulled into some type of market on the side of the street and this older woman was selling it out of the back of her car. By far some of the best hot sauce I've ever had. There's no label on it, no nothing. Um, so I'm going to have to go search that out the next time I'm in the Caribbean uh, to, to taste it. Um, and one of the other things that you mentioned with the kind of R's and L's is something I made fun of usually is that I typically don't sound out uh, syllables like N and G and things like that. And it's somewhat from growing up in the Northeast and spending time in Boston and things of that nature. So I have to very consciously do it and I still miss it probably 90% of the time. So I understand exactly where you are, but it is interesting. And I didn't know about the, the sadness versus the happiness, but as you said it, it made perfect sense. It's a very distinct thing in the lilt in Caribbean accents. For example, when, when, when Jamaican talk, everything in and a down sound, they always sound angry. <laughs> everything lilt, everything happy. So it's, it's a, it's a very subtle distinction, but I can always tell a Bayesian accent from a Jamaican yep. accent. As growing up, someone with a, a Jamaican stepfather from the age of one, I can tell you exactly what, uh, what that sounds like, you know, throughout his family and, of course, from him. Yeah. So something I've talked over the past couple episodes, I think that's very relevant you know, these days, it being July 2020 that we're recording this and something I know obviously is very important to you is diversity, inclusion, belonging. How have you seen that, you know, obviously you had that experience with the liquor industry. Have you seen that uh, become increased or, or, you know, more kind of transformed and also in the hospitality industry overall, which I know you've had an, you know, you've kind of played in over the years. For the last five years, I taught uh, at liquor conventions, a seminar called how to build a longer table with the idea that we could encourage inclusivity and diversity. If people who had, extended their tables to others who did not yet have. And that seemed like a good idea at the time. And then COVID overthrew all of those tables. And the model that everyone was used to using suddenly didn't exist anymore. And I find uh, in this current COVID atmosphere, that I lack the desire to reset tables that were never designed to include me. 
the thing I'm teaching people nowadays is instead of how to make a longer table is how to build your own table. Sure. So if there's somebody who has a table and I can borrow a hammer, if they can point me in the direction of somebody who's selling the wood at a price that I can manage, or if there's somebody who's willing to help me uh, with the craftsmanship, sure, I am all for collaborations that actually allow people to move forward. But in a general sense, what I'd like to see nowadays is not as much the constant uh, request for validation as much as people deciding that they would no longer require the validation and setting things up on their own. And it's a harder way, but at the end of the day, it is ultimately much more satisfying and puts us all on a path toward equality. I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, as someone that's spent my past 10 years or so in Silicon Valley, everyone says that they, that they have a culture of that, right? We have a great culture. It's based on diversity, belonging and inclusion. This was even before all of this uh, took place you know, Black Lives Matter and this whole movement that's currently going on. But I didn't believe when I worked between different companies or consulted with different companies that they really and truly meant that in their core. You saw that maybe they hired a person or celebrated a month. But what was that celebration really like? Did they, did they hire because that person was the, the best person for the job? Or did they just hire to check a box? And they, that's how they got away with it. And that's not how, in my eyes, we should, we should be looking at any of this. We should look at who are the the best people for the jobs. Again, I grew up with a a Jamaican stepfather most of my life. I am someone that can truly say I don't see color. I know a lot of people say that, but I grew up with it. So um, I don't believe that people should hire to check a box. I believe that people should look at the skill sets and if they don't have the skill sets, train up on the skill sets, offer people how to become more diverse or to open their eyes wider uh, and things of that nature, which I don't see happening that often these days either. Um, well, this is the difference between diversity and equity. Uh, diversity being the idea that a mix of backgrounds, whether it is religious, ethnic, sexual, geographic, makes for a a better management team and for a, a better company. But equity takes into account the idea that structurally speaking, the I the concept of meritocracy is a myth. And the idea that there's a, a best candidate will always produce the same kind of candidates because of the way the system is designed to work. For example, 
the schools that were in the neighborhood that I grew up in were impoverished because the neighborhoods were impoverished because black people were only told they could live in certain neighborhoods and redlining was a real thing. Uh, it does not mean that the abilities and the desire and the uh, motivation was not there to do all of those other things, but systemic denial of opportunity is a real thing. So I always want people to say, I, I want you to see color. I want you to see the idea that on a base level, my experience is different. And that means that the advantages that I was denied play a part into whether or not I have the opportunity to show I can do a job. Uh, I myself, I am unlettered. I did not have the opportunity to go to college. I have no formal degrees of any kind. Almost all of what I know is self-taught. That said, uh, I was a good teacher and I learned a hell of a lot. And I didn't let those things get in my way personally uh, to the extent that one can, through sheer strength of will, overcome centuries of systemic oppression. Uh, I have tried to do that with some limited success. But I actually want for folks to be able to look and see if you are if you are a person of color, if you are a woman, if you are a person who is not a heterosexual, there have been absolute barriers put in place that make the idea of meritocracy unreliable. And I want for folks to be able to look and go, that's somebody that can do the job if I give them the chance, whether or not they have proven that they could do it up until this point, because the advantages or disadvantages based on their marginalization have to be taken into account. I want for people to see my color. I don't want for people to deny my lived experience is different by design and not by my design, but by the design of the system I was raised up in. I myself am unlettered. I do not have any kind of formal college degrees. Uh, everything that I do is self-taught. Uh, fortunately, I was a good teacher and I learned a lot. And it is uh, between that and being incredibly stubborn, as I said before, I've been able to, in some cases, circumnavigate some of the systemic barriers that have kept other people uh, from achieving the same kind of things that I have done. At the same time, I always want for people to be able to look and say uh, actively, I understand and appreciate that the, the same opportunities are not, are not afforded to all of us. Here's a great example. The neighborhood that I grew up in, in Southeast Queens, was poor. And because of that, the schools were poor because schools are tax funded. Uh, so I literally, the, the kids who grew up with that, they, they, it's impossible for them to get the same level of education, even though they're theoretically going through the same grades. I, I want for people to acknowledge and recognize that we have as much ability and desire and motivation as anyone else, if given the opportunity, 
And too often we have to make those opportunities for ourselves because we're seen as lesser than. I want for folks to acknowledge this. I can, you know, I think you and I have a lot to agree on this besides growing up with a Jamaican stepfather and things of that nature. But your comments about where you grew up, you know, I grew up in a gang ridden neighborhood uh, that, you know, my apartment bu- building was riddled with bullets and uh, high school seemed like this thing that to graduate was uh, like what to us nowadays is to graduate with a master's degree, right? So to come out of that, graduate with a bachelor's, then I went on to become one of the first people in the country to have my master's degree and, you know, be where I am now, that's not supposed to happen in that neighborhood. And uh, congratulations. Thank you. But it, you know, fights every day at my middle school or, you know, things of that nature happened. And it was a normal part of life. And so I know exactly you know, what you mean, I'm, I'm sure, obviously, there are some differences. But, you know, I know what it means to grow up in poverty and kind of have to claw your way to get to where you are and defy odds. So, yeah. During, so during a recent conversation, and I, I didn't realize this at all. But during a recent conversation, we realized that we both suffered from tumors that we fought and yeah. that we both fought back from. I'm curious of two things. How did you find out? And then how has your journey been, you know, from finding out to being either post-tumor or learning to live with it? I, those are the pieces I don't know. So here's how I found out, uh, I had been having this is a this is a decade ago. This is 2010. Okay. I I've been having sciatic pain so bad that I could not sleep. And I will never forget having one night when the pain was so bad that I had my legs up against the wall like an L shape. Because that was the only thing that didn't hurt. And I got out of bed at six o'clock in the morning and laid on the floor with my knees to my chest like a dead cockroach. Again. Because that was the only thing that didn't hurt. And I laid there for about three hours trying to decide if I should call and stick to work. And eventually, around 9 a.m., I got up because I needed to pee. And I attempted to cross my living room floor. And on the very first step I took, my leg gave out. And as I fell, I hit my head on a bottle of wine I'd polished off the night before. (laughs) So I'm lying there on the floor pain streaming down my legs so bad I can't stand up, not on the back of my head. And my first thought was, holy shit, I can't have sex. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even have a girlfriend, but I'm no good on my back, on my front. I can't sit. I can't stand. I can't walk. I need to see a doctor. And when my doctor could not find out why my sciatica was not improving, he sent me for an MRI and they found a tumor the size of a golf ball lodged inside my spine that was cutting off uh, that was cutting off my nerves. Wow. So that's that's how I found out I had a tumor. 
Well, then, um, now, did you have, sur- I'm assuming, I guess, that you had surgery to remove it and then had some type of physical therapy after that to regain the strength and what have you? So the interesting thing is the the type of tumor that they thought I had is called an ependymoma, and it's usually malignant. So they told me right up front, you have a 95% chance of death and a 50%, 50% chance of paralysis if you live. Because in order to get to this tumor, we need to take a bone out of your oh. spine and then take your spinal cord out through the hole we're going to make and do neurosurgery on your spinal cord because that's where this tumor is attached to. They said, if it turns out to be, we, we have, they said, we got to take it out. But if it turns, it turns out to be what we think it is, it's already in your lymphatic system. You have maybe six months. Uh, I consented to the surgery. They removed this tumor. It turned out to be benign. Five percent uh, chance, and I, I hit, I hit the, I hit the jackpot. And uh, I was standing the next day to everybody's surprise. Wow. So, again, impossible things is kind of my stick. Yeah. Well. I mean, uh, a lot of people that visit this podcast or those that will find it through other methods, you know, mine was a brain tumor. And the way that I found out was that I had a tonic clonic seizure, which is well known to be grand mal, kind of a more official term for it. But I had a tonic clonic seizure. And I shattered both my shoulders, you know, had to have the humeri rebuilt in both of them. The rotator cuffs lost so much bone that they had to uh, rebuild them with donor bone. I have two screws in my left uh, shoulder. I have, you know, wires and anchors and stuff all throughout both shoulders. And um, when they're doing all the MRIs to figure out why I had this, uh, they found that I had a, a brain tumor on the front left side of my brain. And what that affected was both speech and motor skills. And so naturally I had to have, uh, have it removed. And, you know, one of the things, well, luckily there was no potential impact on if I had a high percentage to live or die, right? I didn't have your situation where, you know, 95% kind of death rate versus 5%. uh, You never know what can happen in brain surgery, right? Like one touch the wrong way. And, you know, thankfully, you know, where we live, I go to UCSF and they're number three in the country for neuro. So I get to be treated by the doctors that write journal articles that other doctors in the country learn from. So I've just had that, that, you know, ability that just came of happening to live around here. Uh, But it was scary. I remember sitting in the car, two things happened. One night when I was recovering from my shoulders pre brain surgery, 
you know, sitting there with my wife and my mother-in-law who had flown out from Connecticut to be with us. And we were watching some movie. It was similar to The Notebook, but I don't remember what the name of it was. And the guy's wife had died from cancer. And he ended up finding that in a drawer upstairs in their desk, she had written a card for everything into the future. Every birthday for him and his daughter. Every anniversary. Every Christmas. Everything. That she had left something forever for them. And I went to bed that night and started to sob. And I looked over at my wife and I said, I'm scared I'm going to have to do that for you. And then fast forward to the morning that I was going in for the surgery, you know, it's a, was about a 30 to 40 minute drive from my house to there. I couldn't talk. I was frightened, even though I knew I had one of the best surgeons in the country. Literally, I was frightened by it. And I would come to find out that my wife she just said she had to get up. And, you know, when I was being prepped for the surgery, you know, the neurosurgeon came by and talked to me and, and some things like that. What I ended up finding out later was that she had gone around the corner and began hysterically crying so much that her contacts had come out of her eyes. And that was scary. I mean, the night that I came out of the surgery, my heart went into AFib. Um, that whole experience is, is as you know, uh, dealing with a different tumor. It's scary. It's by far one of the, the scariest things that you can go through within, I think we both had tumors within the two areas that no one hopes to have them. Uh, so I, I got to tell you, what, what you're describing sounds terrifying. Well, <laughs> uh, when, when I went through this, uh, after I consented to the surgery, I did the only thing that made sense to me. I went on vacation, me and 10 friends in a beach house in Cancun and shopping carts full of alcohol. And I made peace with death. Yes. I, I completely made peace with the idea that I was gonna die, and when I got back to the hospital, when I, when I, when when I got to the, when I got to the room, I've never been more calm in my whole life, because I knew I was gonna die, and it was okay. I wish I could have said the same, <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, the the one, I guess, bad thing for me was. Well, besides a lot of it, but was that the hospital room, the surgery uh, got moved up the, you know, I got a call on Sunday night and the surgeon said, Hey, listen, we have a, a bed freed up. You know, we can do the surgery this Saturday. So we need you to come in every day this week for, you know, a number of, you know, you got to get tested for this, that, the other thing before we do the surgery. The surgery was initially supposed to be a couple weeks out. My surgery fell on September the 11th. So every year for the rest of my life, as we, you know, think about 
you know, what happened on September the 11th here in America, I get to look at, you know, one of the scariest moments that happened in my life. (laughs) It's just how life happened for us. But so before all this happened, you know, before I found out that we both kind of shared a similar journey of having tumors and everything, we first met uh, in fitness, a, a fitness challenge that several of our mutual friends do every year. It's, you know, something that a friend of ours, Laura Gassner Odin, uh, and myself yes. had kind of started. I don't know what it is now. I'd have to go back and look, say, five years ago or something at this point. And 10,000 kettlebell yes. swing challenge. Yes, 10,000 kettlebells swings in a month. Uh, which sucks, but every year I've gotten through it. Um, now I know that fitness, obviously something very important to you. I've seen plenty of photos and videos that you've posted over time. Were you, did you use fitness previously and after the fact when learning about your tumor slash, you know, having the surgery or when did all of that passion come about for you? I was always athletic. I always played in sports teams, go all through school. But the fitness has been part of my life as I have gotten older. I'm 50, I'll be 53 in October. It's become part of my life because I want to be able to continue to move around. I see people who are my age and younger who groan when they stand up, who can't see their feet, who have not taken care of myself, of, of the of themselves. I want to make sure that as long as I'm breathing, this flesh sack that's carrying me around uh, is in the best shape possible because that lets me do the things that need to be done in my life. Uh, life, my life has demands that require me to be able to have stamina, and if I don't do those things, if I don't eat well, if I don't hydrate, if I don't exercise, if I don't meditate, I don't have the stamina to that my life demands. So while there are definitely aesthetic uh, values that are attached to taking care of yourself physically, mostly I want to make sure that I'm training my body as well as I'm training my mind. Sure. And, you know, it's funny, one one story that I've always shared, especially with my grandmother, uh, my grandfather now is <clears throat> unfortunately passed away, but they used to own a condo down in Florida, right? The kind of winter escape type thing. And my grandfather at the time was, I don't know, say in his seventies or something like that. And I went down there for a week with them and You know, everyone, you know, elderly, you're pushing around walkers with their tennis balls on them and playing bocce ball all all day and and things like that. And he would go for long swims and, you know, go golf, say nine holes or something, you know, every couple of days. And a lot of those people that were pushing those walkers and doing these things were younger than him, you know, and, yeah. and 
that's always been something. And now my father-in-law is in his early 60s. And if you saw him, you would never once guess it. And he is stronger than most 20-year-olds. Not even aesthetically. Yeah. You know, he's not trying to have a ripped six-pack and big biceps and all that. He just wants to have endurance. And that guy can, when I see him, he runs me into the ground. Like, he'll be like, let's go move three tons of stone around the house. And now I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to do this workout. And then I really wanted to swim for two hours. And then we're coming back and we're doing this. And even myself, who stays extremely fit, gets tired trying to keep up with him. Um, yeah. And that's just him. That's his DNA. That's, you know, he very similarly finds true value in staying fit and to him it's not aesthetics at this point he he doesn't care about aesthetics he just wants to endure his life and feel healthy and be able to do the things he likes now with you know his grandkids and um, be able to go play you know he loves to scuba dive and ski and and all these things he just wants to be able to do those and not be out of breath not well not in the unhealthy way right um so one of the questions that i ask everybody and i'm very interested to hear what you have to your answer is is what does being built unstoppable mean to you For me, it means not letting anyone else's expectations of you ever limit you. I'll tell you a story if I've got a minute left. Uh, Again, I went to elementary school in Bayside, Queens, and the boys played stickball during the recess. I don't remember what the girls (laughs) did. The biggest kids always win the stickball game, and that meant that the fifth graders, and I'll never forget the first day of being a fifth grader at, at PS46 in Bayside, finally being the big kids, met we got to win the stickball game. And I wasn't picked first or second or third. I think I was picked fourth. Uh, again, other people's expectations. But at my very first at-bat, I hit a home run. They hit a home run over the fence, out of the park, into an empty lot, game lost, ball, ball lost, game over. And nobody expected it of me but me. And I remember being 10 years old thinking, yeah, I knew I could do it. A lot of people spend a lot of time trying to unwork other people's expectations of them from the expectations of them of, of themselves. Listen, if you think you can do it, fuck what everyone else yeah. thinks. Do your thing. And again, it's not trying to prove anyone wrong. It's just proving to yourself stuff that you already know. I completely agree. And to hear that at such a young age for you is incredible. When, I mean, I've always tried to work to defy odds, right? From growing up in poverty to to where I am currently, but a more recent story for me is, I'll always remember, it was the Wednesday before my surgery on my shoulders. And my neurosurgeon, 
who's, or I'm sorry, my uh, shoulder surgeon uh, came in and said, you'll never be able to lift weights again. I'm going to get you back to normal as much as possible, but the mobility and the stress on your shoulders are, it's just going to be different. And um, a lot has happened since, right? And I won't go into all those details. It's been all positive, but, you know, I have completed, I don't know, 12 or 15 uh, Spartan races, then, you know, participated in probably close to 10 go ruck challenges. You know, in 2017, I completed my uh, trifecta, including, you know, being at the Spartan World Championship, which was a eight and a half hour run at 10,000 feet uh, elevation at certain parts. It was defined the odds that I was told I could not do, that I would never be able to do again. Um, that drove me to prove everyone wrong. Um, five yeah. months after having my shoulder surgeries, I was swimming in open water in St. Lucia. And I'll never forget coming back. And I showed him, you know, one of my visits, I showed him. And he asked me to send the video to him because he had never had someone do that. And that's <laughs> all, you know, most people he operates on one shoulder and never mind both right. shoulders and the kind of depth of surgeries he had to do. He has that video. I don't know who he's shown it to since then. Cause I don't, you know, I haven't kept in contact with him, but it was the find the odd that told me I could not. And, um, and I continue to do that and, and have always done that. So finally, uh, you were featured in a, Esquire magazine article. I'll include that in the show notes. But beyond that, where can people find you on the web, whether that's social, a website, etc.? The website, which pretty much is the go-to, is JackieSummers.nyc. On Instagram, it's the Liquorian. L-I-Q-U-O-R-T-A-R-I-A-N. That's my mom's nickname for her kids because she doesn't like calling us alcoholics. <laughs> on Twitter, it would be Jack from BKLN. Same on Facebook, Jack from BKLN. Perfect. Well, hey, Jackie, I think this was a, a phenomenal conversation that, you know, we are able to talk about a number of topics. And, you know, I thank you for being so inspiring to those that are going to hear this podcast. Um, and, you know, you've been a great guest today. So thank you. An absolute pleasure. Please stay safe and take Absolutely. care. Absolutely. Thank you for joining another episode of Built Unstoppable. Please head over to builtunstoppable.com where you can read new articles from Justin Levy. 